Introduction Welcome to the Abata Audio Guide for Selbridge. This guide is designed to lead you through the sights and stories of this wonderful town which retains the charm of a village. Straddling the River Liffey in County Kildare and easily accessible from Dublin and the rest of Leinster, Selbridge is an ideal gateway to Ireland's ancient east. It is home to a host of interesting stories and historic buildings and has connections with an array of significant figures from the past, including William Speaker Connolly, Jonathan Swift, Arthur Guinness and Henry Grattan. We will hear more about their stories later in our guide. The name Selbridge derives from the Irish Kildrochad, meaning the Church of the Bridge, and there are references to this name in documents from the 13th century. The current name of the town represents a partial translation of the Irish form. With the anglicisation of Irish place names in the 12th and 13th centuries, Kildrochad became known as Kildrought, that name was further anglicised in the mid-18th century to Selbridge. As its name suggests, Selbridge originated as an ecclesiastical settlement. St. Machua is said to have founded a religious community here about 600 AD. His church was probably located on the site of the later medieval church at Tea Lane Graveyard, close to the village centre. In the 13th century, the Augustinian Abbey of St. Wolston was founded on the opposite bank of the river at Donacumper. In the early 18th century, the fortunes of Selbridge improved greatly. The arrival of William Connolly, who was Ireland's richest and most powerful man at the time, was a catalyst for development and growth. He and his descendants exerted a major influence on the development of Selbridge over the next 100 years and more. Their most enduring legacy is the magnificent Castletown House. They also sponsored educational institutions in the town and ensured that buildings on the village street were constructed to a high architectural standard. By virtue of its location on the River Liffey, Selbridge also developed as a centre of industry in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Mills employing hundreds of men and women sprang up along the riverbanks. The focus of industry was on textiles and clothing, in particular a unique and famous Selbridge hat. Although it has grown rapidly in recent decades, Selbridge maintains the rural ambience of a village. Its main street, historic buildings and pleasant riverbank walks provide an opportunity for relaxation and a chance to explore and understand the history of the area. When you are ready, please make your way to Castletown House, where our tour will begin. Castletown House, built by William Connolly and situated to the northeast of the village centre, is the jewel in the crown of Selbridge and one of the highlights of Ireland's ancient east. It can lay claim to be the finest period house in Ireland, 
and indeed can hold its place among the great houses of Europe. It is the earliest example in Ireland of Palladian-style architecture, which arrived here from continental Europe in the early 1700s. Amongst the hallmarks of this style are symmetrical proportions and the influence of classical Greek and Roman architecture. To understand the story of Castletown, we must first go back to the 17th century. This was a time of immense turbulence and conflict, both political and religious in nature, right across Ireland. Following the Glorious Revolution in England, the Catholic King James II was deposed and succeeded by his son-in-law, the Protestant William of Orange. The theatre of conflict moved to Ireland in 1690, where the two kings led opposing armies at the Battle of the Boyne. William's forces won the day, and were also victorious at subsequent battles at Athlone, Ockram and Limerick. The war ended in 1691 with the Treaty of Limerick, and its chief legacy was the transformation of Ireland's landed class. Those who had been loyal to James, known as Jacobites, who were primarily Catholic, were dispossessed of their lands. A new Protestant landed class came to the fore and benefited from generous grants of land as a reward for their service. One of these was William Connolly, a native of Ballyshannon, County Donegal, born in 1662 and the son of an innkeeper. He trained as a lawyer in Dublin and set up his practice in the northwest of Ireland. Soon he had made a substantial fortune providing legal services for land transfers as many new landlords sought to sell off their land as soon as it had been granted in order to make a quick profit. Connolly's shrewdness and legal expertise helped him to acquire large tracts of land across Ireland, often at knockdown prices. He also improved his fortunes and his social position with his marriage in 1694 to Catherine Cunningham, the daughter of a prominent Williamite general, which brought with it a substantial dowry of £2,300. Connolly amassed over 15,000 acres of land in eight Irish counties, along with estates in Wales. His properties brought him an annual rental income of over £17,000, a massive sum at the time. Connolly embarked on a political career and was elected to the Irish Parliament for Donegal Borough in 1692. The height of his career was his election as Speaker of the Irish House of Commons in 1715, from which he earned his nickname Speaker Connolly. He was undoubtedly the most influential political figure of his time. In 1709, Connolly purchased lands at Castletown, within easy reach of Dublin, from Colonel Thomas Dongan. Construction of the mansion commenced in 1722. The facade was designed by the Italian architect Alessandro Galilei, who met Connolly on a visit to Ireland in 1718. Galilei returned to Italy before construction began. 
The identity of the subsequent architect is unknown, but Edward Lovett Pierce, the young Irish architect who had just returned from a grand tour, designed the service wings and colonnades. However, by the time the house was ready to use as a residence in 1729, William Connolly had died. Connolly's widow, Catherine, resided at Castletown after his death, where she improved the estate and entertained a variety of guests. Following Catherine's death in 1752, her husband's nephew, William, and subsequently his son, Thomas, and his wife, Lady Louisa Lennox, came to inherit Castletown. Lady Louisa, in particular, left an important mark on Castletown and was constantly making improvements to the house and gardens. She made sure to employ the best craftsmen, but also used her resources wisely. Following her husband's death in 1803, she devoted her remaining 18 years to good works in the community. In 1821, close to death, she asked that a tent be set up in front of the house so that she could gaze on her beloved Castletown to the end. Thomas Connolly, known as Squire Connolly, was a member of Parliament, but it is said that he did not possess the same political shrewdness as his illustrious great-uncle. He did, however, use his influence to ensure that the 1798 rebellion, which caused much bloodshed elsewhere in Kildare, did not get a foothold in Selbridge. A guided tour of the house is the best way to get a full appreciation of the architectural marvel that is Castletown. Notable features include the long gallery on the first floor, used to entertain guests. Servants brought food into the room at one end without being heard at the other. Magnificent decorative stucco plaster work by the Lafranchini brothers adorns the staircase hall. Castletown contains 100 rooms and 229 windows and is today set in 120 acres of beautiful landscape grounds stretching down to the River Liffey. Its scale alone, quite apart from its design, makes it hugely impressive. As one 18th-century commentator remarked, this I believe to be the only house in Ireland to which the term palace can be applied. The house remained in the Connolly family until the 1960s. When it was sold to property developers, its future appeared uncertain. Fortunately, it was purchased by Desmond Guinness of the famed Brewing family. With the support of the Irish Georgian Society, he aimed to preserve the house for future generations and the Castletown Foundation was established in 1979 to further this objective. The foundation undertook some conservation work and also acquired many of the furnishings that you see today. The house was transferred to the Irish state in 1994 and the Office of Public Works carried out major restoration work. Castletown House is open to the public from early March to late October, and there are daily guided tours. The beautiful parklands around the house are open to the public all year round and are free to visit. From Castletown House, take the path to the southeast through the grounds which brings you to the Batty Langley Gate Lodge. This unique building can be rented from the Irish Landmark Trust. 
Turn back here and continue your stroll upstream along the banks of the Liffey with the river on your left. Across the river is a site of great significance in the early history of Selbridge, St. Wolston's Abbey. As you stroll along the River Liffey, the site of St. Wolston's Abbey is visible to the south on the opposite bank of the river. Apart from the gatehouses, few traces of the abbey remain above ground. A tower, which can be seen across the river, was built in the 19th century and was designed to be viewed from Castletown. This marks the location of the abbey. St. Wollstone's Abbey was a religious house belonging to the Augustinian canons and was founded in 1205 by Adam de Hereford, one of the first generation of Anglo-Norman colonisers that had taken part in the invasion in 1169. It is said that St. Wollstone's was one of the largest abbeys in medieval Ireland at the time and its buildings alone covered 20 acres. The abbey was granted the nearby church of Donacumper, which indicates that this ecclesiastical site on the old Dublin road, where a ruined medieval church still stands, predated the abbey. St. Wollstone was an English saint from Worcester, who lived between 1008 and 1095. He was the last Saxon bishop in England and the only one to retain his office after the Norman Conquest in 1066. His links to Selbridge are unclear, but the abbey may have been named after him as he was canonised around the time it was founded. Wollstone was influential in ending the slave trade between Bristol and Ireland and there is evidence that Irish pilgrims travelled to Worcester to venerate him. He is the patron saint of vegetarians and dieters, and his feast is celebrated on January the 19th, perhaps a more appropriate date for New Year resolutions than January 1st. In 1536, the Abbey had the unwelcome distinction of being the first Irish monastery to be suppressed by Henry VIII. The lands were forfeited to the crown and granted to John Allen, one of the foremost statesmen of the early 16th century, who was later appointed Lord Chancellor of Ireland. St. Wollstone's became the seat of the Allen family for the next two centuries. They built a large estate house in the 17th century, which was later modified. In the 20th century, it became a girls' boarding school run by the Holy Faith Sisters, thereby retaining the ecclesiastical and educational link with the past. The new school in Selbridge on the Clane Road is also dedicated to the medieval saint. As you continue to walk along the river through the grounds of Castletown, you can see other points of interest. These include the Ice House, the ruined Bathing House, and on the Upper River Walk, Mrs. Siddons Temple. From the higher path, cross the stream at the footbridge and take the path along the lake to Castletown's Lime Tree Avenue. Castletown Avenue is a long and straight thoroughfare lined with lime trees which draw the eye in the direction of the main gates and Selbridge 
to the southwest. This splendid avenue reflects the planned design of estates such as Castletown, where tree planting and landscaping were carried out to develop pleasant vistas. Two architectural wonders, the Connolly Folly and the Wonderful Barn, are located some distance from Castletown, but were designed and built to be visible from the house. The Connolly Folly is three kilometres to the northwest and was built at the behest of Catherine Connolly in 1740. It is an obelisk which stands 140 feet high. It was built to close the vista from Castletown House and is viewed from the windows of the Long Gallery. Although it serves no function other than that of a decorative one, it is regarded as an outstanding piece of architecture. It was built to employ local people following a severe winter famine. Since the 1960s, it has been brought back to its former glory thanks to the efforts of the Irish Georgian Society and the Office of Public Works. The late Marika Guinness, co-founder of the Irish Georgian Society, is buried there. Just three years later, in 1743, the wonderful barn was constructed about two kilometres to the northeast of Castletown, close to Leakslip. Its construction also provided much-needed employment for the destitute, but it was built to serve a practical purpose. Grain was securely stored and dried on each of its seven stories. The external staircase, which winds up the outside of the building and gives it a distinctive appearance, was designed to maximise internal space. As you walk along the avenue, it is possible to catch a glimpse of Donacumper House across the river to the south. Its chimney stacks are visible through the trees on your left. Amongst the inhabitants of this house were the Kirkpatrick family, who were of Scottish origin. Sir Ivan Kirkpatrick was permanent undersecretary at the British Foreign Office in the 1950s. He served in the British Embassy in Berlin in the 1930s, interrogated Hitler's deputy Rudolf Hess after the latter's arrival in Britain in 1941, and served as a political advisor to General Eisenhower. At the gates of Castletown, you may wish to consider a brief diversion on your journey. About 350 metres to the right from Castletown Gates on Big Lane, or the Maynooth Road, is the former workhouse. It dates from the 1840s and was built on land donated by Edward Connolly. Workhouses were built throughout Ireland at this time under the Poor Law Relief System to provide relief for the destitute. However, they became synonymous with misery, disease and death. Conditions in the workhouse were deliberately harsh in order to discourage people from entering. It was the last resort for the poorest of the poor. Selbridge Workhouse served a large part of North Kildare and could accommodate over 500 people. Many of those who died there are interred in unmarked graves in a burial ground adjacent to the site. A monument, designed by local artist Charlotte Daly, was erected here in recent years by Selbridge Tidy Towns. The former workhouse building is now occupied by the Colour Trend Paint Factory. 
The gates to Castletown are located at the top of the main street in Selbridge and provide a good starting point to explore the link between Castletown and the village. The piers on either side of the entrance are a fine example of cut stone masonry and date from the time of Thomas and Lady Louisa Connolly. Each one is surmounted by a sphinx, a mythical figure from ancient Egypt, and they contain many other impressive decorative features. The wrought iron railings are a 19th century addition. There are a number of interesting buildings in the immediate vicinity of the gates. On one side are three gate lodges. The ground staff and gardeners on the estate would have lived here. They are known as the gatehouse, the pottery house and the roundhouse. The gate lodges have now been restored and furnished to a high standard by the Irish Landmark Trust and can be rented as self-catering accommodation. Just inside the gates is Christchurch, the Church of Ireland for Selbridge. It was built in 1813 with sponsorship from Lady Louisa Connolly. It was significantly remodelled in 1884 and many of its most attractive features date from this time. The red sandstone coins and surrounds on the windows and doors as well as the cross-shaped finials catch the eye, while its tall bell tower is a distinctive landmark on the skyline. At the rear of the church are two buildings which are testament to the benevolent influence of the Connolly family. Lady Louisa was particularly interested in fostering education and established two schools here in the early 19th century. A primary school was opened in 1814 and was the first to offer free education in Selbridge. The building had initially been used as kennels. Thomas Connolly was reputedly the first person in Ireland to maintain a pack of hunting hounds on his estate. On the slip road down towards the River Liffey is the former School of Industry. It was set up specifically for poor boys and girls and is perhaps an early example of vocational education. It opened its doors in 1820 and trained boys in practical skills such as shoemaking, carpentry and basket making. Girls were taught how to knit and sew and also to make the straw bonnets which had been designed by Lady Louisa. Many of those educated at these establishments took up employment in the local mills. At the other end of the village, the Selbridge Charter School on the Clane Road was founded around 1735. It was established through an endowment left by Speaker Connolly in his will for the reception of 40 orphans or other poor children. Pupils were mainly trained to enter into service. Connolly bequeathed £500 to fund its construction and £200 annually towards running costs. Selbridge Charter School later became Selbridge Collegiate School and is now the Selbridge Manor Hotel. From the gates, proceed down the main street The 18th century development of Selbridge is reflected in the fine architecture along its main thoroughfare. When William Connolly purchased Castletown in 1709, he is reputed to have said that the inhabitants of Selbridge were all beggars. 
At the time, many of the houses in Selbridge would have been patched mud cabins inhabited by poverty-stricken labourers. Keen to ensure the development of the town, Connolly put in place strict conditions for anyone who wanted to construct a new residence. They were obliged to build houses of stone and to add chimneys. It was also around this time that he changed the name from the old Irish form, Kildrought, to the more anglicised Selbridge. Close to the gates of Castletown and on the north side of the street is Jasmine House, Originally the home of Charles Davis, an agent of William Connolly, it was constructed in the classical style and dates from around 1750. The distinctive architectural features of this house include the round-headed doorway, the front-facing pediment which has a Diocletian window, and the weather vane on the eastern gable. The round-headed iron archway over the front gate was built from material salvaged from the GPO in Dublin following the 1916 Rising. Michelangelo's restaurant is another one of the impressive cluster of buildings at the top of Main Street. It once housed the Royal Irish Constabulary Barracks. As you make your way down the street, the former courthouse, which dates from 1805, is on the left, south side. It is defined by its beautiful limestone facade with red brick dressings around the windows. It was later used as a cinema and community centre. At the front of this building is a life-size bronze statue of Arthur Guinness, whose association with Selbridge changed the face of Irish brewing. Selbridge can lay the strongest claim to being the birthplace of the master brewer who developed the world-renowned Black Stout. Arthur's father, Richard, came to live and work in Selbridge as the agent for the Reverend Arthur Price. In 1722, Reverend Price bought Carberry's Malt House, and it was here that Richard was living when his first son, Arthur, was born around 1725. This is now the site of the Mucky Duck Pub, near the bridge, and there is a plaque on the wall marking the spot. Between 1751 and 1766, the family lived at number 22 Main Street, opposite St. Patrick's Catholic Church, which was owned by George Finey, an agent of William Connolly. Arthur Price was Arthur Guinness's godfather and left him £100 in his will, which the young entrepreneur used to set up his first brewery in Leaslip. It was from these beginnings that the Guinness brewing empire began. A new chapter is now being added to the story of brewing in Selbridge with the arrival of the Rye River Craft Brewery and Visitor Centre on the Dublin Road. Kildrought House is one of the first houses from this period. It is set back from the street close to the statue of Arthur Guinness. In 1719, William Connolly invited Robert Bailey an interior designer to undertake the decoration of his great house. To that end, he leased Bailey land in the village on condition he improved the property. Bailey built himself Kildrought House. This rare example of 18th-century domestic architecture has remained substantially intact since that time. Bailey brought Flemish weavers to Dublin, and two of his tapestries still hang in the former houses of the Irish Parliament, now the Bank of Ireland on College Green, Dublin. 
These depict the Battle of the Boyne and the Siege of Derry and can be viewed during banking hours. Over time, Kildrought House has been a school, a fever hospital and a dispensary. Today it is in private ownership but is open to the public at select times and dates during the year. Continue down the main street and keep an eye out for other architectural features in the streetscape. At the end of the street, you will reach our next stop, Selbridge Mill. The waters of the River Liffey have been used to power mills in and around Selbridge for centuries. Mills have been recorded dating back to 1217, to the time of Thomas de Hereford. Kildrought Mill grew from the 13th century to become the focal point for industry in Selbridge. The mills were renowned and were mentioned in letters patent from Queen Elizabeth I in 1583. Other mills sprang up along the Liffey and in the 17th century, nine mills were recorded along a two and a half mile stretch of the river. In the 18th century, the mills underwent several phases of expansion and development under Thomas and Lady Louisa Connolly. The completion of the Grand Canal, as far as Hazelhatch, and more beneficial trade laws led to this expansion. In 1764, John King rebuilt Kildrought Mill and ran a brewery and distillery in the town. A linen manufacturing enterprise was established in 1783 and employed 300 people. The large water wheel was used to power the looms and other machinery. Following another period of expansion and refurbishment, two men from Yorkshire, Atkinson and Houghton, arrived to take over the mill in 1805. Their high-powered machinery for processing wool was prohibited in England, so they brought their expertise and skilled workers across the Irish Sea and set up a thriving enterprise in Selbridge. In 1815, their woolen mill was the largest in Ireland and employed over 600 people. Many of these were children who worked up to 13 hours a day. These were prosperous times for industry as the Napoleonic Wars increased demand. However, a change to the laws regarding wool exports in 1825 spelled the eventual demise of this business. The legacy of this period still lives on in the name English Row, which refers to a row of cottages across the road from the mill buildings that were occupied by English workers. All the mills were less active in the late 19th and 20th centuries, including Kildrought Mill. A number of very different industries used Kildrought Mill until the building was taken over by the local community. It is now a thriving community centre and hub for small businesses. The turbines powered by the strength of the Liffey waters are still used to provide electricity to the buildings. A stone plaque visible on the external wall of the mill close to the entrance gates marks it as the site of the ancient holy well of St. Makua, or Tober Makua. This plaque dates from the 18th century, the exact site of Makua's early medieval monastic foundation is thought to be Tea Lane Graveyard, which is our next stop. When you are ready, please cross the road, but take care in doing so, 
and walk 200 metres up Church Road where you will reach our next stop, Tea Lane Graveyard. The graveyard on Tea Lane, also known as Church Road, is perhaps the earliest evidence of settlement in Selbridge. According to tradition, St. Makua established a church here sometime around 600 AD. Makua was also the first abbot of the nearby monastery at Clondalkin, County Dublin, where a round tower still stands. If the gates to the graveyard are locked, you can phone the number displayed nearby to gain access. The eastern gable of the medieval church ruin, which still stands here, dates from around the 14th century. However, there is archaeological evidence of a circular enclosure which may date from Makua's time and which marks the boundary of the original monastic site. The church is mentioned in ecclesiastical taxation documents from around 1302 and was still in use until at least 1615. It is not clear when it fell into ruin, but the presence of burials from the early 18th century indicates it was no longer a place of worship by then. The Monsell family, who came to Selbridge in 1813, used part of the footprint of the medieval church as the foundation for their private chapel, the Monsell Memorial Chapel, where some members of the family are interred. Burials no longer take place in Tea Lane Graveyard, but there are three prominent tombs here from earlier times. William Speaker Connolly and his wife Catherine are interred in the Death House, which was attached to the ruined church. Inside the mausoleum is a magnificent white marble monument. The Latin inscription composed by Catherine Connolly commemorates her husband's life and achievements. She was keen to express that he was an honourable man. Some of the Speaker's critics and rivals have claimed that he used underhand means to amass his fortune. One part of the inscription translates as, He made a modest though splendid use of the great riches he had honestly acquired. The monument initially contained life-sized marble statues of both William and Catherine, but these were later removed and are now on display at Castletown House. The Grattan family vault abuts the western wall of the graveyard and holds the remains of Henry Grattan the Younger, his wife and five children. This Henry Grattan was the son of the famous politician and statesman, whom we will hear more about in track nine, Selbridge Abbey. The younger Henry Grattan was also an MP and worked with Daniel O'Connell to repeal the Act of Union. Among the other notable burials in the graveyard are those of the Dungan family. The Dungans fell victim to the fluctuating fortunes of Catholic Irish landowners of the 17th century. Having been granted lands in Selbridge in 1588, they later participated in the 1641 rebellion and fought for the Royalist armies against Cromwell's forces at the Siege of Drogheda in 1649. They were forced to flee Ireland but returned when Charles II was restored to the throne and were made Earls of Limerick. William Dungan fought for King James at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690, but left for France after his son died in the battle. William died in 1698, and his brother Thomas succeeded to the title. 
Thomas returned to Ireland in an effort to reclaim the family's lands and succeeded in doing so. But at such ruinous expense, he was then obliged to sell them. William Connolly was the beneficiary of this. Thomas had been Governor of New York State from 1683 to 1688 and drafted a Bill of Rights which has an important bearing on the US Constitution. In recognition of this, a plaque was unveiled at the rear of the Munsell Memorial Chapel in 1995 by the US Ambassador to Ireland, Jean Kennedy Smith. It is interesting to note the origin of the name T Lane. This is not the official name for the street, which is called Church Road, but it was christened so by locals in the 19th century. Workers from Yorkshire, who were brought to Selbridge to work in the local mills, were noted for drinking tea in large quantities. They dumped the used tea leaves along the side of the road here. Close to Tea Lane Graveyard is Oakley Park House, formerly Selbridge House. Although not accessible to the public, it has several associations with prominent individuals from the past. It was built in around 1724 by Reverend Arthur Price, vicar of Kildrought, who was also private chaplain to William Connolly and godfather of Arthur Guinness. Arthur Price went on to hold the office of bishop in three different dioceses, Clonfert, Ferns and Meath, before becoming Archbishop of Cashel. In Cashel, he earned notoriety for removing the roof from the cathedral on the Rock of Cashel before building a new cathedral in the town. Selbridge House later became home to the Napier family. Colonel George Napier and his wife Lady Sarah Lennox, a sister of Lady Louisa Connolly, came into ownership of the house in 1785. Their five sons were educated locally at Kildrought House, and four of them later rose to prominence in the British Army and Navy. Three of them served with Wellington in the Peninsular War of 1808-1814, part of the Napoleonic Wars. They were known collectively as Wellington's Colonels. William Napier wrote a detailed history of this conflict. In the 1840s, Charles Napier became Commander-in-Chief of the British Army in India. He clashed with other officers in wishing to show greater tolerance and understanding of the Indian people. Oakley Park House is now a centre for people with intellectual disabilities run by the Order of St John of God. When you are ready, please return to Selbridge Mill and turn right. Selbridge Abbey is located on your left. You can enter the Abbey grounds via the car park and follow the path to the playground. The grounds are open from Monday to Saturday until 3pm each day. Selbridge Abbey is another fine structure which dates from 1697, though the Gothic building we see today dates from the Golden Age of Selbridge during the 18th century. It is also intimately associated with one of the most famous personalities of the time, the noted writer and satirist Dean Jonathan Swift. The house can be viewed as you walk from the car park to the playground. Please note, however, 
that the remainder of the grounds are normally not open to the public, but can be viewed as part of a guided tour of Selbridge. A house was built here in the final decade of the 17th century by Bartholomew von Homerig. He was of Dutch origin and a loyal supporter of King William of Orange, who was victorious in the struggle for the English crown in 1691. Bartholomew served as Mayor of Dublin in 1697, and the golden chain of office, worn to this day, was originally presented to him by King William. He was also an agent of General Hinkle, who had masterminded the Williamite victories at the Battle of Athlone and Siege of Limerick. Hinkle was rewarded with a grant of the Dongan family lands around Selbridge, and von Homerick purchased these from him in 1695. He set about making Selbridge his home and began construction of his new residence. Following his death in 1703, however, his wife and four children left for England. It was in England that Esther van Homerick, Bartholomew's eldest daughter, first encountered Jonathan Swift. The writer and clergyman had not yet reached the height of his fame, but would go on to become the finest satirist in the English language. Esther became infatuated and professed her love for him. When he returned to Dublin to become Dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral in 1713, she soon followed him and took up residence in Selbridge. Swift regularly travelled to Selbridge Abbey to spend time in her company. She had a special bower built for their visits, where they would sit, overlooking the River Liffey. Swift's poem, Cadenus and Vanessa, was inspired by their relationship, and she has been remembered more by the literary name Vanessa than for her real name, Esther. The precise nature of their liaison, however, remains shrouded in speculation. Swift was rumoured to have married another woman, Stella Johnson, in secret in 1716. He encouraged Esther to find a different suitor, and she received several marriage proposals, including one from Reverend Arthur Price. When Esther wrote a letter to Stella asking her about her supposed marriage to Swift, events took a turn for the worse. Swift's fury was aroused, and he travelled to Selbridge to terminate their association. Esther died just a few short months later, in 1723, at the age of 34, reputedly of a broken heart, though the most likely cause was tuberculosis. Selbridge Abbey was purchased by Thomas Marley, he was Ireland's Attorney General at the time and rose to the position of Lord Chief Justice in 1741. His grandson was Henry Grattan, the most noted political figure in late 18th century Ireland. A wonderful orator and parliamentarian, Grattan sought to create an Irish Parliament that was free from British interference. He succeeded in this aim in 1782, hence the title Grattan's Parliament, even though Grattan never took government office. He spent much time at Selbridge Abbey and used the tranquil surroundings to reflect upon and develop his political philosophy. He later wrote that, Along the banks of the Liffey, amid the groves and bowers of Swift and Vanessa, I grew convinced that I was right. 
In the late 18th century, Selbridge Abbey was modified from Van Homrick's original building to its current appearance. Thomas Marley and his son, Dean Richard Marley, were primarily responsible for the building we see today. The Gothic style of the house is distinctive and includes pointed arch windows, battlemented parapets and hood mouldings over some windows. As part of the landscaping of the grounds, the Rock Bridge was built some time after 1740. It is a pedestrian bridge and is now the oldest surviving bridge over the Liffey. We hope that you have enjoyed your visit to Selbridge. Free guided walking tours of Selbridge are a worthwhile way of exploring the village in the company of a local guide. Details can be found by searching Selbridge Guided Tours on Facebook or by phoning 087 963 0719. To get a full appreciation of Castletown House, you can take one of the guided tours which run daily from early March to the end of October. The parklands are open all year round, free of charge. Castletown also hosts a regular programme of cultural and musical events. Visit www.castletown.ie for details. There are many other sites within a short distance of Selbridge which you can visit by car. Connolly's Folly and the Wonderful Barn are worthy of inspection at close quarters. The burial place of Arthur Guinness at Uttarad is eight kilometres to the south. The graveyard is on an elevated site with fine views and also contains a round tower. Ardras, about two kilometres to the west of Selbridge on the Clane Road, is associated with St. Patrick. There is a holy well here that is still a place of pilgrimage. Other places of interest close to Selbridge include Tagador Round Tower, Manuth Castle, and the Lion's Estate. This guide has been produced by Abarta in conjunction with Selbridge Heritage Tourism Forum under the auspices of the Integrated Services Programme and with the support of Kildare County Council. If you are visiting other parts of Kildare, you can download other audio guides from Abarta to help you navigate your way. Free audio guides for Kildare Town, the Curra, and the Kildare Monastic Trail are available on our website. As you continue on your journey, we would simply like to say, Gunairi Amboharlath. May the road rise to meet you. <laughs>